So how many of you know what a Peloton exercise bike is? It's probably quite a few of you do. There's a running joke among people who have friends that have a Peloton, and the joke is, how do you know if a person has a Peloton bike? The answer is because they tell you every time they see you. So um, I would be one of those guys that has a Peloton bike, so it's my opportunity to tell all of you, but it's woven into my sermon illustration today, so it's, it's not just some vanity little, hey, I got a Peloton. Anyway, it's my, it's my sermon illustration today. So my number two question is, how many of you are aware of the Tour de France? Yeah, I was aware of that. I didn't know much about it, surprisingly. But the Tour de France is a uh, bike race that happens every summer in France. And the bike race is about 2,200 miles. And it's a race that takes place over 21 days by 22 teams of nine people. And how the race works is for 21 days, there's a bike race every day. And then the goal is you have the shortest amount of time, and then at the end of the 21 days, they add up everybody's time, and whoever has the shortest amount of time, they're the big winners. But it's interesting how the race works because you actually, it's a team sport. You have teams that compete together. So your goal is to kind of cheer on the other guy, your other people on your team to encourage them. But usually what happens in a Tour de France is there becomes a big group of riders towards the front, and that's called the peloton. Peloton simply means a group of people riding a bicycle. So there's this group of people riding in a peloton, and their goal is to work off the other person's effort. What you do in a peloton, you want the other guy to be first so you can ride behind them and you can catch their draft, that actually you can expend less energy and rely on the person's strength in front of you. So you see this peloton moves throughout the 100-mile race for the day, and eventually what happens, you got a person in the lead, and they get tired, and they kind of find their way to the back of the peloton, and then the other group rides forward. So all during the day, it's people are advancing in different spots during the peloton. But the whole goal of this peloton is at the right time, you're going to break free from the peloton and you are going to sprint as fast as you can to get to the finish line. The goal is not to remain in the peloton. The goal is strategically to break free so you have the fastest time. But there's another group of riders that a lot of people don't talk about. There's another group of riders that's usually not watched by the news or the sports announcers, and that group is called the Gruppetto. The Gruppetto is a group of people that were once in the peloton, but because of their strength, their endurance, or maybe their bicycle, they fell way to the back of the line. And the way the Gruppetto works is it's a peloton of riders, but this Gruppetto knows they're not going to win. They're not going to be in first place. Their goal is to simply finish the race. So the Gruppetto sticks together. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a family. It's a community where you encourage the next person, the person next to you. You might share your snacks with that person. If that person has a flat tire, you might stop your bike to help them because the goal of the Gruppetto is that everybody finishes. It's no longer competitive. They all want to finish the race. And when I look at the Tour de France... And I look at the Peloton, and I look at the Gruppetto, I think the church needs to look a whole lot more like the Gruppetto. The church needs to look like the Gruppetto. That's it's a group of people that wants to encourage everybody else to finish the race together. 
I think way too often our churches look like the Peloton. It looks like the high achievers who are going to finish, and they're looking for an opportunity to break from the pack so they can be first, so they can get more recognition. Where I think the grace is on the Gruppetto. I think the grace is on the group of people that says, you know what, I want to finish together. I want us all to finish together. And I will share what I have to help that other person. And if that other person is having a breakdown or their bike is broken, I'm going to stop and help them. I think that's what people are looking for in this day and age for a church and a community to be like. We want to be be the Gruppetto. See, in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about the Gruppetto. In Hebrews, the author says, For since we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that's before us. See, I like the language that this author's using because several times he's using the word, let us. He's talking about a group. He's not saying, let you run, let you finish. He's saying, let us finish together. See, the whole goal of this author is that we finish the race, and in the process, we throw off anything that would weigh us down. We throw off any sin that would weigh us down. And so chapters, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it's all about how we need to throw off these hindrances. And all throughout this chapter, the author talks about the life is hard and life is difficult, then we're going to have challenges, we're going to have breakdowns, we're going to have flat tires, so to say. So what is the whole purpose of Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12 is calling for the Christian life to be radical. It's calling for the Christian life to be restructured about the plans that God has for your life. That's why it's so important to have a gruppetto to run with. It's important to have a group of people that will run with you to help you when you feel weak or you feel broken or you feel stressed or you run out of supplies. That's why we as a community, we focus so much attention on spiritual formation. We focus, focus our attention on spiritual formation so we can become like the people that Christ intended for us to be. So far in this series, we've talked about developing a rule of life, developing a pattern and a rhythm of your life to put Christ first. And we talked about things like prayer and how prayer needs to be a priority. And we talked about last couple weeks about understanding your identity. Who are you and who has God created you to be? And we also like to talk about dealing with your past, dealing with things from your past that influences you today. And today, today I want to introduce another spiritual practice. And that's the practice of silence and solitude. Of all the practices, this one probably is often met with the most resistance. A lot of people look at silence and solitude like, that's code for boring. That's code for something I'm not going to like. I think some people look at uh, as silence and solitude as like it's forced isolation. But silence and solitude is simply the practice of carving out time in your schedule, in your life, and in your rhythm to spend more time with God. So why is it so important? Number one reason it's so important is because it helps us to do what Jesus gave his life for. Jesus gave his life so we could be with God. And silence and solitude says, now let's take advantage of this opportunity to spend as much time as possible with God. 
See, everything we do in spiritual formation is designed for one thing, for us to be with God. There's a quote by Sky Jatani that I love so much from his book, his book, With. He says, And as we are with God, we actually begin to desire God above all other things. Instead of using God, we desire God. And in the process, our desires begin to change from the things we thought we desired to God. I love this quote, and I love the fact that he used that phrase, using God. We go from using God to being with God. I think it's important that we understand that whole concept of using God because I think so often in our American consumer-driven church culture, we tend to use God more than just want to be with God. A lot of times people in the category of using God, they want God's blessing, but they don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time with God. Or they might want God's blessing, but they're really not that interested in God transforming their life. In 2005, there's a sociologist from North Carolina. His name is Christian Smith. He came up with this remarkable study about religious teenagers in the United States. And through all of his research, he came together, and the, final, the conclusion of his research from these young people was that their view of God was a combination of he was a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. All of his research, he looked at these teens, and his conclusion was they look at God as a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. For them, God simply was there to help them get what they really wanted. God was kind of a means to an end for them. So he goes on to say in his study that um, their, their view of God, that they were primarily concerned with one's own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, and serving others. So that's his research of young teenagers that were raised in a Christian or a family of faith that they looked at God as a combination of divine butler and a cosmic therapist, and they were really more concerned with their own happiness rather than having a relationship with God. When someone asked Smith, said, why were these teenagers like this? His answer will probably not surprise you too much. He said the reason they were like that is because that's how their parents were. The kids were just doing what they saw their parents do. I think sometimes we worry about the next generation. I think we need to be a little bit more concerned with our own behavior that we might be passing on to the next generation. See, the bottom line is this. So often we try to create God in our image instead of letting God make us into his own image. See, one of the important parts of silence and solitude, it's a way to get completely alone with God so he can work on our desires. So he can transform the desires that we have in us. Because as you know, as Paul talks about, there is a war within each of us between these ungodly desires and the godly desires. We're all at war with those. And what we learn is that the time we spend with God, he can hone in the desires that he has placed in us. Through scripture, we see that Jesus spent a lot of time in silence and solitude. 
That's why we talk about it. Because if Jesus did it, it's probably a good idea that I do it as well. And you see in Scripture that there's two things that mainly happened when Jesus spent time in silence and solitude. The first thing that happened was a time of preparation. And the, script, the, the, the note, I think you have the notes that say in Mark 1, verse 35, here's an example. It says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus was a morning guy, got up really early. I like that, Jesus. But then Luke 5, this is probably Jesus praying there during the day. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. And here's for you night people. Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. There's our night people. I'm the morning one. So you see from Scripture that Jesus spent a lot of time in silence and solitude. There's a lot of reasons he did it, but one reason was preparation. See, Jesus could only do what he saw the Father doing. How is Jesus going to know what he can do if he doesn't spend time with the Father, occasionally check in and say, hey, what do you want me to do today? That's why Jesus spent so much time with God. That's why Jesus performed so many miracles, because he would go back to God and say, what do you want me to do? It's the same thing for us. We need that preparation. We also see in Matthew 4 that Jesus spent time alone in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Why? So he would be prepared for the enemy that would attack him. Sometimes the best way to be prepared for temptation is our time of silence and solitude. But we see that silence and solitude isn't just preparation, it's also a time of restoration. We see in Matthew 4, after Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, when he was tempted by the enemy, it said an angel came in and attended to him. I think we'd all agree that a lot of us are looking to be more prepared, and we're looking for some restoration. And sometimes the biggest amounts of restoration can happen in a time of silence and solitude. God wants all of us to spend time in silence and solitude. And it's my observation that we can either go willingly into a time of silence and, silence and solitude, or sometimes God will find a creative way to get you into that situation. We see in Genesis 16 of a young woman who found her time in silence and solitude when that was the absolute last thing that she was looking for. We find this young servant girl, her name is Hagar, and she's the Egyptian slave of Sarah and Abraham. And Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's daughter. And now she... Oh, Abraham's son. Whew, thank you. And um, she's running uh, from Abraham's wife. And so she's running off, thinking she's running away from her problems, and God is actually going to use that as an opportunity for, for her to have a time of silence and solitude. And how does God reach her in her moment? He reaches her by asking her a question. It's the question that he asked her that actually got her to stop and to pause. That is good to be aware of. Sometimes the way that the Lord speaks to you is through a question. How many of you have ever had a question running through your head? I wonder why. I wonder if. That is the way God often speaks to people. He gives you a deep question in your heart, and you wonder why. God speaks through questions. 
And you see here, it got Hagar to stop. She's running away. A question comes in her head, <clears throat> and she needs to process that. So in Genesis 16, 8, it says, The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from, and where are you going? That's a really good question. I mean, that really did get her to pause because he is asking her a question about her past as well as he's asking her a question about her future. And I think sometimes we stop here and we say, oh, what is the connection here? How are these related? We, I mean, we understand that we all have a past, we all have a present, and we all have a future. And quite often, we will talk about how our past will influence us today. You had a rough childhood or a really good childhood, that will inform how you behave today. And we often talk about how our behavior today will inform and influence the outcome tomorrow. But often we don't talk about how knowledge of our future can actually influence our behavior for today and actually redeem our time in the past. That's what God is doing when he's encountering Hagar. He's going to speak to her about her future so it redeems her current, it influences her current situation so it can begin to redeem her past. That's a good question because she's pausing. And I think it would make all of you pause and me as well if I said, where have you come from and where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you heading for right now? I'll be honest, I really don't like Genesis chapter 16. It's not a very nice story. It's not the Bible at its finest. It's not Abraham and Sarah, wow, those are role models. It's kind of the first six verses you'd kind of like to bury them and kind of pretend that that never happened. You read those first six verses and you're like, how in the world did Abraham become a hero of the faith who gets recognized later on in the Bible as like, be like Abraham. So I think it's important when you read the story, you remember the story is not about Abraham and Sarah's sinfulness. It's about God. It's about God's love and his compassion and his mercy, and his grace to redeem people that it looks like there shouldn't be redemption for you. That's the beauty of the story. It's not about sinfulness. It's about compassion. It's about God willingly to break into anybody's life, in anybody's situation, and turn them from a despicable situation into a person that could be listed in the Bible as a hero of the faith. That's the beauty of reading Genesis 16. If you feel like you are too far away from God's kindness, this is a chapter for you. If you feel like you've gone one step too far, this is the chapter for you. Because this is about the character of God. So, you know, I'm going to read a quote by a Jewish rabbi. I forgot how to say his name. He says, a major theme in Genesis and the entire Bible is that grace comes to those who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, who continually risk it, and who do not appreciate it even after they receive it. That's kind of Abraham and Sarah. 
they get a lot of grace. It's going to take them a long time to really appreciate it. So let me read to you Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have, a, have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relationships with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to mistreat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarah said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. I think you can see why I wanted to avoid, these, avoid reading these verses. It's, it's a little daytime TV versus what you'd expect from the Bible. But this is a situation that God promises Sarah and Abraham that he has an incredible life plan for them. He's going to bless them abundantly. They're going to have many children. They're going to have many blessings. They're going to have many descendants. But Abraham and Sarah, well, they got a little impatient. It wasn't happening as fast as they wanted so that they thought, well, maybe we could help God out a little bit and take this matter in our own hands. So they came up with a really good idea. Abram, you just sleep with uh, Hagar and we'll see what happens. And quite naturally, the minute they do that and she's pregnant, all the problems start. So often that is how we recognize our problems. We make the problem and then we're like, that's a little too late. And so it's interesting what happens. It starts this, this, this poor relationship between Sarah and Hagar to the point where the scripture says that um, Sarah started to treat Hagar so harshly that she ran away. That word harshly is an interesting Hebrew word because it's the same exact word that was used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were in captivity for 400 years. The same word harshly is what was used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they didn't make enough bricks. So Hagar is in this terrible situation. She's treated harshly, and so you kind of don't blame her for running away. And as she runs away... God intervenes with her. And we read in verse 7 through 9, it says, Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. I think you read that and you're like a little shocked, return? Why would I go back? Why would I go back to that situation that was terrible? I mean, honestly, she has every good reason to leave and now God is encouraging to go back. Now what's interesting is that Hagar really does go back. She goes back joyfully and so you kind of wonder, how did God get her to go back? What did God say to her that would actually make her submit to God and do what he's called her to do? So you read in verse 10 through 12. Then the angel said, I will give you more descendants than you can count. 
And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. The son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. That's not a good motivational speech to get you to go back. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little encouraging. It's encouraging to hear you're going to have many descendants. It's encouraging to hear you're going to have a son. That's going to, that's going to bless Hagar. She's going to need a son. Someone take care of her when she's older. And it's very comforting to hear that God has heard your distress. But then God makes this wild promise to her and says, your son is going to be as untame as a wild donkey. I don't think any pregnant woman would be encouraged to hear that. I don't think any pregnant woman would be encouraged to hear that your son's going to live in open hostility against all his relatives. I don't think they'd be happy to hear that he's going to raise his fist against anyone. As my wife said to me, he was the first child to be diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder. And I don't think anybody would be happy about that circumstance. But surprisingly, Hagar complies, and she goes back home. Even after the promise that her son's going to be wild as a donkey. Now, it makes you wonder why she did it. Did we lose something in the translation that we're just not figuring out? Is there something like, the, the, is, is like a wild is a wild donkey? Is that some kind of idiom that we're not aware of? What, what is that? So I did spend literally, probably lying, fudging a little bit, probably I literally spent six, four hours in the library at Calvin College looking through all of the commentaries to figure out what in the world this wild donkey son means. I'm looking for something really redemptive, so I'm going to like share something like, you know what it really means? It's really cool. I couldn't find anything good. Now, some people say they kind of try to put a positive spin on it, but the majority are basically like, it's terrible. There's nothing good out of it. So really, I don't have any good conclusion to get you. I'm like, why would she be motivated to go back? She's going to go back. She's going to, Sarah's going to still be there, probably be treated poorly, and the son is going to be a wild donkey. So you keep reading. Genesis 13, verse 16 through 16, it says, Therefore Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also says, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So, so that well was named Ber Laroi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. That's kind of an interesting set of verses. Hagar never asked God for clarification on what does it mean that her son's going to be as wild as a donkey. She doesn't ask him for clarification on what does it mean he's going to raise her, his fist against you. She never asked for any more details of what God means. Instead, she does something different. She locks in on the character of God. 
She focuses 100% on the character of God. She does not even mention the problems. She does not mention her circumstance. She just focuses on the character of God. Suddenly, when she is focusing on the character of God, her situation becomes very insignificant. The character of God becomes significant as her circumstances become insignificant. Suddenly, the more she focuses on God in this time of silence and solitude, really what is happening in her life becomes insignificant. And she's able to do what the Lord has called her to do because she's focusing on the character of God and not on the quality of her situations. And when the angel disappears, Hagar realizes that she was talking to the Lord, that she was actually talking to Jesus. See, this is a pre-incarnation of Jesus. This is what we call Christology, where you see Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. You listen to the language of Genesis 16. It starts out, an angel of the Lord said to her, an angel of the Lord said to her. And here in verse 13, it says, and then Hagar used another word to refer to the Lord. Hagar realized through this time and silence and solitude who she was talking to. That this angel was the Lord. This was Jesus who came to her and visited her in her time of breakdown, in her time of trouble. And Hagar was able to look at God and say, you see me. You see me. You see my situation. You see my hurt. You see my pain. You see my discomfort. And the fact that you know me gives me confidence that I can follow you. The fact that you see my situation, I can follow you. And the fact that you know my future gives me the confidence to know I don't have to worry about today. And I don't have to worry about the past. Because if you know my future... You're going to get me there. See, Hagar could go back to Sarah and Abraham with the confidence of the Lord because she knew that God would continue to see her. That God was not going to send her back so she could be cursed, but God was going to send her back so she could be blessed. See, for what Hagar realized, that her circumstances don't matter a whole lot when you focus on the character of God because God saw her. It's interesting, she's the first person that gives give God, that she would recognize and tell God one of his names. All through the scripture, God reveals his names to her, and she was one of the first ones that recognized and said, you are the God who sees. You are the God of El Roy. So why did God ask Hagar, where have you been? And where are you going? Why did he ask her that? He asked her because she didn't know the answer. He asked her because he wanted to tell her the answer. He wanted to tell her where she's been. And more importantly, he wanted to tell her where she's going to go. He wanted Hagar to have the confidence that he knew where she was going to go. Often the questions that you have in your head, the questions you wonder about, God wants to tell you the answer. 
He's not trying to make you figure it out like it's a big riddle of life. He wants to tell you the answer. And sometimes it's that alone time and silence and solitude that God gets your attention and he can tell you the answer. See, King David picked on, up on this whole theme of God, God's a God who sees me. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. See, David understood that your life began before you even were born and that your life will end way out, outside of this place called earth. And David recognized that, and that's what Hagar recognized that day, is that God sees what is happening, and he wants to get you to your, get you to your destination. See, for Hagar to realize, where have you been, Hagar? What's the answer? Where has she been? She's been in God's plans. God was watching over her. God was taking care of her. God knew what was going on. And where is Hagar going? She's going towards the plans that God has for her. Hagar's right between the past and her future, and God wanted her to have confidence that he's going to get you to where you need to go. And sometimes your grappetto is going to help you get there. So often we think following Jesus is more like that peloton. Like it's a heavy competition where I got to figure this out and I got to work harder and I got to strive harder and I got to figure out when can I break free from the pack and sprint really hard. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is found in your grappetto. The Christian life is found in that silence and solitude. It's found in the place where God answers the questions that you have. It's found in the place of community where you can be open and honest about what's going on. Where you can be vulnerable and say, I need help. I need encouragement. It's in the place where other people can share their supplies with you and help you when you're along the road. I love silence and solitude. It's a great place to be. But I also love riding with a gruppetto. It's nice to ride with people who want me to finish as well, that don't want to finish way ahead of me, but are going to ride with me. That's our calling, to be people that ride in a gruppetto, to encourage people, but that we'd spend time in silence and solitude just like Jesus so we can be prepared. We can be prepared. We need to be prepared to ride in a gruppetto. See, the message of the Bible is kind of simple. The message of the Bible is that God doesn't have to change every single one of your circumstances to make you happy or to give you peace. The message of the Bible is simply that when you know that God is with you, and when you know that God sees you, you experience peace. That's where peace is. Being with the one who sees you. Not having to have every circumstance figured out. Amen. So God, I thank you that you are the God who sees us. 
I thank you that you are a God who's aware of every single thing happening in our life and in our circumstances and in our situation. God, I do pray for anybody here today or watching online who's going to watch later in the week if they are not experienced that confidence, knowing that you are with them and that you see them, may they experience it now. May your Holy Spirit bring comfort to every person here or listening to me that they would leave here knowing maybe a little bit more that you see them and that you are aware of every single situation going on in their life. May we have comfort knowing, God, that you have planned our future way before we are even born and you know how to get us to where we need to be. God, I pray for each person here, Lord, that we would see your character in ways that we've never experienced before. Lord, even as we close with this last song, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to each person here or watching or participating online, that we would experience the fullness of what you have for us, just like Hagar did, so we can get up in our difficult circumstance and say, you know what? I'm going to be obedient because I know that God is with me. In Jesus' name, amen.